Okay, and welcome back to Fast Jet Performance then. My name is Tim Davies, and I thought I'd do a podcast because I'm a little bit angry, and when you get a little bit angry, it's worth having a rant. And seeing as I don't have a crew room anymore to go and talk these things through, I thought I'd better get on the old podcast here and get some uh, get some of this stuff out to you. And it's all to do with the death of um, a 29-year-old man on Friday night, and he died in a, an aircraft incident. Notice I use the word incident and not accident. I don't believe that these things are accidents. I think there's always causes, and in this case, there most certainly was, and we're going to have a chat about that. So the incident itself, and you may have heard about this, was um, to do with uh, an, an aircraft that was a Dash 8 Q400, I believe it was, that was taken from uh, an aircraft, uh, an airfield called Seattle-Tacoma International Airport, or SeaTac, in the United States, by uh, an Horizon Air employee who, from all intents and purposes, sounds to have been a baggage handler for the company there. And this gets quite deep into why he was a baggage handler and his circumstance and everything else. Anyway, he gets in this jet. Uh, sorry, it's a twin turboprop. He gets airborne. He actually flies a series of maneuvers, um, which are quite difficult maneuvers to fly. He's learned to fly on like flight sims. And in doing so, um, he flies a barrel roll and some loops and everything. It's been socialized on social media, which is how I found about it, out about it. And he uh, has a conversation with air traffic and the the conversation is actually quite harrowing. So I'm going to play that now because it's instrumental in really what we're going to talk about in a minute. Um, I'll just play that real quick now and then we'll just come back. So this is a guy who's literally stolen a passenger jet. He's uh, the only person in it and he's flying that jet south and he's doing some aerobatics and stuff at low level. And he uh, doesn't really know what he's doing or what's going to happen to him when he, when he either lands this thing or he doesn't know what's going on. Anyway, I'll let you listen to the audio and then we'll come back. I got a lot of people that care about me, and uh, it's going to disappoint them to, to hear that I did this. Um, I would like to apologize to each and every one of them. Um, just a broken guy, got a few screws loose, I guess. Never really knew it until now. I'm, uh, I'm down to 2100. I started at like 30-something. Rich, you said you're at uh, 2,100 pounds of fuel left? Yeah, uh, I don't know what the burn burn itch, burnout is like on uh, uh, on takeoff, but uh, yeah, it burned quite a bit faster than I expected. There is the, uh, the runway just off your right side in about a mile. Do you see that? That's the... Uh, that's the, uh, that's McCord, uh, field. Oh, man, those guys would rough me up if I, uh, tried landing there. I think I, I think I might mess something up there, too. I wouldn't want to do that. Uh, hopefully, oh, they probably got anti-aircraft. No, they don't have any of that stuff. Uh, we, we're just trying to find a place for you to land safely. Yeah, not quite ready to bring it down just yet, but holy smokes, I gotta, I gotta stop looking at the fuel because it's going down quick. Okay, Rich, uh, if you could, if, could you start a left-hand turn, and uh, we'll, we'll take you down to the uh, southeast, please. This is probably uh, like jail time for life, huh? I, I mean, I would hope it is for a guy like me. And uh, okay. right now he's just flying around, and uh, he just needs some help controlling his aircraft. Very good. Nah, I mean, I don't need that much help. I played some video games before. 
Uh, I would like to figure out how to get this cabin altitude. Like, I know where the box is. I would like to get some, uh, make it make it pressurized or something so I'm not so lightheaded. Anyway, uh, minimum wage. We'll, we'll uh, chalk it up to that. Maybe that'll uh, grease the gears a little bit with the higher up. Maybe, uh, yeah. Damn it, Andrew! People's lives are at stake here! Now, Rich, don't, don't say stuff like that. Nah, I told you, I'm not, I don't want to hurt no one. I just want you to whisper sweet nothings into my ear. Hey, you think about landing this successfully, uh, Lasko will give me a job as a pilot? Uh, you know, I think they would give you a job doing anything if you could pull this off. Yeah, right. Nah, I'm a white guy, eh? If you wanted to land, probably the best bet is that uh, runway just ahead and to your left. Again, that's uh, McCord Field. Um, if you wanted to try, that might be the best way to set up and see if you can land there. Or just like the uh, pilot suggests, another option would be over Puget Sound into the water. Dang, uh, did you talk to McCord yet? Because I don't think I'd be happy with you telling me I could land like that because I could mess some stuff up. Well, Richard, I already talked to him, and uh, just like me, what we want to see is you not get hurt or anybody else get hurt. So, like I said, if you want to try to land, that's probably the best place to go. Hey, I want the coordinates of that orca with the, you know, the mama orca with the baby. I want to go see that guy. So anyway, that's not the easiest thing to listen to, is it? Now, obviously, a few minutes later than that, he uh, he crashes the jet down on an island and he's killed. There's a big investigation now. He's being followed by a couple of F-15s that launched on um, quick readiness alert. He wasn't shot down, apparently. He did actually run out of fuel, and he crashed the airplane. And he obviously didn't know what he was doing. There's a lot of comments on social about how he should have been shot down and everything else. But more overwhelmingly on social media at the moment, there's a lot of people saying, what the hell are you doing with this guy in an airplane? Why is he even in this airplane? And what they mean by that is, it's not that he shouldn't have had access to the airplane and everything else. These airplanes don't have keys. and you know, If you know how to start up an airplane, you can get in and start it. But it meant that there was something in his brain that didn't stop him from doing that. And if you think about the way we operate in societies, there's something that we all have normally within us um, that stops us just going out and stabbing our neighbor or whatever or, or, or hanging ourselves in, in the garages. And that's to do with um, our mental health. So obviously... Uh, this guy here, um, Rich Russell, he was married to a woman called Hannah. He'd met her pretty much from school. And um, they're only young. He's only, as I said, 29. Um, they used to run a bakery together and this kind of stuff. Moved up from Florida. They loved Alaska and he could fly up there anytime when he worked for the airline. He obviously was going through a phase in his life where he felt that he could not um, carry on in life, which is which is pretty terrible. And the way he did that was obviously he took an airplane and he took it for a flight and there wasn't going to be an any ending to that. And as you heard in the audio, he said, um, I'm just a broken guy. I've got a few screws loose, I guess. I never really knew it until now. And that's the thing about mental health. Sometimes it can deteriorate to the point where the chemical imbalance in the brain means that you see no other option um, by other than taking your own life. And obviously this is where Rich got himself, um, which is pretty sad. He had a, he's got a blog actually online if you ever want to go and read any of his stuff. And it's actually quite interesting when you do read it. It's called... Um, uh, richardrussellsite.wordpress.com and he's just a normal guy and the thing that kind of gets me about this guy is he, he would have been 
any one of our buddies. You know, he talked about going into law enforcement. He talks about content creation and using Adobe Photoshop and Premiere and these other programs to create content. And this is pretty much what I do. He talks about technology, takes some pictures. He likes his traveling. Uh, he really enjoys all the people that he, uh, all his family and all his friends. And this isn't the kind of guy that you'd say was on that, that edge where he was going to go and kill himself. And this is obviously what he intended to do when he got into the airplane. I don't think that's in doubt. Uh, from what I've been reading. And I haven't read too much. Not much has come out really about this. And this is why I want to do this post before a lot more comes out because it's definitely going to color my views. Um, I won't not necessarily color my views about what I'm talking about now because what I'm talking about now is generic mental health. And this guy here is obviously in a lot of trouble uh, with his mental health is has really kind of highlighted something to me. And that is how we treat people in the workplace primarily because he was a baggage handler. And what actually happened at this airline, just a little bit of research I did was um, about May 20, uh, 2005, Alaska Airlines, they, they kind of locked out nearly 500 of the ramp agents and baggage handlers. And these were the careers that had gone on for decades, right? Um, hundreds of families, all of a sudden, the main breadwinner on the doll. And it impacted the local economy by more than about $150 million. It's a huge thing. It was outsourcing. So the men and women now doing those same jobs that, that Richard was doing, um, they do it through a subcontractor for Alaska Airlines, and they, they were pretty much on the minimum wage. I think he spoke about that in that tape you just heard there. They have few benefits uh, anymore, so they result in a high turnover of staff and obviously safety issues at this airport, which you this is a big safety issue. This, this dude's just got on an airplane, um, airplane, and he's just going to crash it on an island. And it's very interesting because what I tend to find, and I'm sure out there you've probably seen this as well, is that a lot of corporations will try and find that that bottom line, that that level they can play, they can pay employees, where well, they're still going to go and work for them, but really they can then pass the money they save from wages into the tax, uh, sorry, into the shareholder. And um, so, really, what they're doing is, uh, this is what we find when companies come into the military is largely they they privatize the profits and they kind of socialize the risk and the losses um, go to everyone else. And we, we find that, of course, when things are privatized, when when you privatize nationalized industry, national industries. I'm not saying that we shouldn't, but I'm just saying that this is what we tend to define within the military. And I think this is what we found here with Alaska Airlines was there's a guy, this guy working as a baggage handler who had these hopes and these desires and he couldn't actually, he just couldn't see a way forward um, with doing so. And so he just was making minimum wage by doing this job. Uh, he didn't know how else to, to do that. He's got a wife to look after. He's, you know, he's probably thinking kids and everything else. And uh, it just kind of gets too much for him. And as opposed to, there being a safety blanket of people above him. And I saw some that, that can recognize that and look after him. Those people aren't there. There's a high turnover of staff. They probably don't know him that well. Someone on social wrote um, that they knew him and he was a guy who would sit in a corner and read a book. He was everyone's friend. He was not an, not an aggressive guy in any way, just a, a real kind of thinker and stuff. And as I said, you know, he'd probably be one of our one of our buddies if we knew him. I think everyone, this is what other people are writing was, you know, he was a friend to like everyone, which is what makes it so sad really. He's got lots of pictures on his site. He's very much interested in, um, he even talks about how he's putting together his videos. He's he's talking about, he's got like a little timeline. I'm looking at it now. A uh, storyboard, rough draft um, for the life of, as a ramp agent. And this was done back in late t- 2017. And he's he's got like visual elements between, you know, the start and 30 seconds are going to open with a shot of a belt loaded with bags on it. And And you can actually find that video that he made on YouTube. It's just a series of clips. It's actually very basic and he spent time planning what is a very elementary video which is which is how people start off when they're, they're in content creation that they're, they're what shall i do well let's start this let's use these products to try and do all this stuff it's it's really interesting when i watched that it was quite moving in a way because 
he was in a place where I was 10 years ago making content. And now, you know, he's, he's done a bit of content, he's learning. And of course, that's not going to happen anymore because he's, um, he's killed himself, which is pretty sad. Because it should never happen. You should never be in a position where, in a company where you, you, you can't talk to someone about the way you're feeling. And I think a lot of the problems that I see is that sometimes there is no sounding board. If you go to your boss and you say, I'm not feeling great, well, then you're just telling your boss that you're a substandard employee. And some bosses will see it as that. As I've moved into the private sector from the public sector, having left the military about two months ago, one thing I realize is there's um, there's a lot of this passive-aggressive element within these businesses that I never used to have in the military we were very direct with each other and, and that came as part of it all and it was fully accepted that you could be direct with someone and it wasn't you having a go at them or anything like that it was just more expeditious and more honest to say to someone look your flight performance was not right today what's the matter and then they say oh I'm not feeling great talk it out what's up with you okay I've got a problem with the marriage whatever fine do you need time off do you need to go and see the doc do you want to go and see a psychologist and this, this is what happened to me back in 2011 I got grabbed by another flight commander who obviously knew, noticed I was going downhill. And he'd been going downhill a year before, and he suggested I went to see someone, and eventually I did. And it actually helped a lot. I had two sessions with a psychologist down in Telford in the, in the UK here. And that was available in the military, and it still is. Um, it's a service you have to go and ask for. There is no occupational mental health as such within the military, which I've always found a bit odd. I think the military feels that if you were to talk more about mental health, then maybe it would become a thing. And that's a possibility that people all of a sudden would start questioning their own mental health and I know whether that's true or not but uh, I, I can't still I, I find it difficult that you fly jets or you or you have these soldiers or you have these police officers or all these people working in these industries and there's nothing there for them to go and approach and to say I'm, I'm not feeling great and it's interesting because it's very rare that pilots do this um, obviously we had the German wings uh, pilot who was obviously in a very very bad way and, and flew his jet into the ground but it's, it's very rare that a pilot will ever do this with an airplane they almost kind of self-regulate and I was never in a position myself even when I was flying over North Wales and you're tired and everything you never think about putting your jet into the ground when you win it it's just not the case pilots are very good at compartmentalizing their emotions and this is a bad thing but by the way when you leave it's a very bad thing that you you have no way of really opening those boxes and exploring what that means because you've been taught to box all these problems up that you have in your head and put them on a shelf for a sympathy later. And uh, this is one of the problems that we have when we leave the military. And I'm going generic here, guys. I'm talking about this and talking about some other stuff. But when you leave the military, you've never been, you've never undone the military. So the military starts off, as you know, you go in, you do lots of marching, you make your beds real neat and everything. And then people tell you how bad you're doing and they break it down and rebuild you because what they're trying to get you to do is, is to conform. I'm not an anti-military guy. I spent 20 years in the military, but uh, this is something that we need to know about. And it teaches you to conform because then it's, it can allow you to run to the, towards the sound of guns. That's the whole point. When there is gunfire, you can run towards it, which is a, a very unnatural thing uh, for someone that hasn't been trained in that way if a bomb goes off most people turn away and they run which is very sensible by the way and i don't want you to not do that but a military guy won't do that they'll probably clear out the family whatever they can but they, they will go back into that scene to see whether they can help people whether they can engage with that aggressor that's what they've been trained to do um and when you leave the military that's still there so you're confrontational and i'm confrontational and i know i am and i try and temper that in the civilian workplace that i'm in and i have a big issue with this passive aggressive element that's going on and i just tell people you know how i feel uh so we can just clear it up straight away and that gets me into trouble sometimes it's fair enough but i'm still treading lightly and finding my way um it's just an interesting observation that we never undo that that training in the military just get put straight back out to civvy street so 
It's interesting as well because Ant Middleton, the uh, ex-SBS guy who's got the TV program, he's doing something now where he's starting a, a fund to try and get 30 sort of social workers to, to be there for people that come out of the military and find it difficult. And then these people will help these, these young guys coming out of the military to undo that military training so they can uh, be absorbed back into, into civilian life. So there is a lack of that within the military, but it's still there if you go and ask for it. And I think in this guy's, in Richard Russell's case here at Horizon, uh, there wasn't that oversight. There wasn't that duty of care. And of course, the airline now, rightly so, will be looking at themselves and saying, well, how much would it have been to employ uh, an occupational um, therapist uh, full-time, maybe, that these guys could turn to? Would it have been less than crashing or the cost of a Dash 8 Q400 series airplane? Oh, it probably would have done. Maybe we should go and employ that that fucking therapist, right? Because that would have been a lot cheaper. It makes me angry because... I've seen it, you know, I've seen guys leave the military because that help wasn't there. And good people that we could have kept in and could have done great things for the students coming through them are now flying out in Saudi or whatever, or, or these are good men and women that are, are flying overseas for other contractors because the military failed to retain them because uh, it failed to appreciate the pressures they were putting on them. And we see the same things in the typhoon force at the moment. These guys are on debt the whole time. And uh, I know a lot of them are doing licenses and everything else because the pressures for the home life is just too, ex too extreme. Uh, there's other issues, of course, within the military, and I'm not complaining. I, I loved it. Don't get me wrong. Uh, it's a great thing to do, but I guess we have to understand um, what we're getting ourselves into. So Richard then, he was 29. He had a wife, Hannah. As I said, he was, um, he was born in Florida in Key West, and then he moved up to Alaska when he was seven. He met his, uh, they were, he met his, he met his wife, uh, when he was at school and they were married and, and she's, you know, it's got some pictures on the site. She's a pretty little thing. And uh, they were, he was working for this, this uh, Horizon Airlines, just doing some luggage handling. And he played a few video games and stuff, as in he was, he was earning his bachelor in social sciences. So he could then go into a management position or maybe a military or law enforcement. And that's, that's what his kind of blogs was about. He was taking a communications class, which is helping him create content. So it all in, if, from the outside, it, it looks really stable. And I think what's going to come out in the news over the next few days is that there's a picture of stability there. And all of a sudden, this guy gets in the airplane, does a few maneuvers, and then runs out of fuel and kills himself. He's never going to, he's never landing that airplane uh, from the sounds of things. And um, it's actually quite sad. So what we're really looking at then is what are we doing with mental health in the workplace? And arguably, it's probably not very much if we've got guys doing this. I mean, this is an extreme. But for every one of these guys, every one of these Richards that gets in this airplane and does this, there's another 10 people that jack their job in and would rather be on the dole looking for other work because they can't stomach the workplace because they need to talk to someone about the problems they're having and there's no one there to talk to. That's the problem. We're not being open about this. And I think maybe this thing here will hopefully start a conversation. Interestingly, on the BBC, which I'm not a huge fan of the BBC, uh, I don't see it as unbiased reporting. Uh, I would honestly prefer to watch Al, Jaze Al Jazeera and we... In theatre in Kabul, all the American forces watched Al Jazeera over their own news networks um, because Al Jazeera was more balanced reporting. And that's what it's got to be. It's got to be fair. It's got to be balanced. It's got to be accurate. Those are the three tenets of journalism, if I remember correctly. So, um, And the BBC tends not to. And the BBC, unfortunately, with this story, uh, never spoke about the mental health issues of this individual. They spoke about the fact he seemed to be enjoying himself and he'd stolen this jet. And it was very sensationalist reporting. And it was very sad that there was an opportunity there to talk about a broken soul, a, a guy who who couldn't um, work his way out of things, and this was the uh, this is the way that he decided to um, to end things. 
It's not the first time. If you go back to 1969, there was a young airman, a Sergeant Paul Mayer, who stole a C-130 off the United States Air Force um, in somewhere in the UK. And he was fluid and he was trying to get back to his wife, who was terribly homesick and lovesick for back in the uh, United States. And he didn't know what he was doing. And eventually he crashed into the sea or he was shot down and no one's ever really worked out whether he was shot down or whether he crashed into the sea. But either way, he never made it back. So there are people that do this occasionally. Um, and so what I'm trying to say is that the safety for stopping this happening shouldn't be locking the aircraft door. You know, it shouldn't be taking the guns off the people. Yeah, okay, technically maybe that's a different one. But it shouldn't be like taking all the knives out of your kitchen drawer and hiding them somewhere. The, 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 the key, the safety for all this is making sure that people have the opportunity to go and talk about the mental health openly and honestly without any kind of retribution. And I don't see that in many businesses. And it's appalling that we're in 2018 right now and that's not happening. There's no way of doing that. So, I mean, I, I remember um, I had a guy, and, I'm, and no names, and I'll change the story slightly here to, to protect these, these, these people I talk about, obviously. But there was a guy who was on the squadron, he was one of, my, one of my team, and he was going through a real rough time. Something had happened in his home life. And uh, he, was, uh, he came to the squadron, he was very angry. He was a very, very good pilot, a very good instructor. And he came to the squadron, he was, a very, he was very angry about what had happened. And uh, very vocal about it on the squadron. Very vocal about it to me. And um, I was trying to offer him some help here, trying to work out what we're going to do with him. And, and the boss decided that the best thing was to stop him flying. Now, I know that was the worst thing you could do. That's the problem with, with pilots, especially when something down in the home life breaks down. Sometimes all they have is the airplane because it's what gives them value and status. And so by the boss stopping him flying, I said, the boss, this is wrong. You, do, you don't want to stop this guy flying. If anything, you want to fly this guy. This guy needs to fly now. This is, this is what he needs to do. And the boss was adamant, nope, I'm going to stop him flying. He's not in a correct mental state. Like the boss was a psychologist or something, right? Like he even knew. It's not even as if he'd said, let's take him to the dock. Let's get him assessed. It was like, let's going to stop him flying until he's better. How do you even know when he's better? So I said, all right, boss, I'm going to fly with him. So I had to go back up to the guy and I said, I said, look, I'm really sorry. I'm going to have to fly with you on this next trip. And he said, I don't want you to fly me. I said, no, I understand that. But I'm your, I'm your boss and the boss, the big boss, he said he's going to stop you flying. And so I'm going to have to get in the back of that airplane and I'm going to have to make sure you're okay. And I said, look, I know you're okay. I've flown with you for years. But this is the only way that you're going to be able to fly again on the squadron over the next month or so until you sort yourself out is if I fly in this airplane with you and I go back and tell the boss that everything's, everything's squared away. So he was like, all right, fine, do it. Now, as we left the squadron, we got into our flight kit. I think it was a 2v1 ACM bounce or something. I can't even remember what it was. It was an air combat sort. He was a, um, he was a very proficient guy at air combat. So he was um, the bounce. He was the hostile against a couple of students. And normally that's a solo trip. You get in the jet by yourself and you go and fight a couple of students, whatever, and you, you teach them. Uh, they're in two airplanes. You're in another airplane and you teach them from the air. It's called outer cockpit fault analysis, that kind of stuff. And uh, so as he, as he walked out, got changed, walked out, he was angry and he was ranting about his problem and he was, he was furious and everything in the world was wrong. And, you know, I knew the guy, he's a, he's a totally professional guy and, and I knew that the moment he got in that cockpit, he was going to be all right. And as soon as he touched that jet, as soon as he touched the wing of that airplane, it stopped. I never heard a word about anything in his home life for the next hour and 15 minutes. We, we flew the trip. Uh, he was entirely professional as I expect him to be. Um, we got down, we landed, we opened the canopy, we get out the airplane and bang, he starts renting again. You know, he's in a bad way, but I knew, although he was in a bad way, he could still compartmentalize and he could still put that in a box and he could still fly the sources we needed to. 
And as we walked back in the squad and he ranted and he raised about this issue he had in his life. And he was very angry. And I went back up to the boss and I said, boss, he's good to go. He's good to fly. And I convinced the boss he'd go flying and he flew and he was fine. Absolutely fine. But there was no help there for him. The only help he had was the guys next to him in the squadron. And if you take that away from him when you don't let him fly and you tell him to sit at home where all his problems are, then he's in a very, very dark, dark place. And, and having been there, you don't want to be there. You, you need to get yourself surrounded by other people and take your mind off whatever problem it is. And I guess Richard here was not able to do that. And so he ended up in a dark place and then and took an airplane and uh, obviously flew himself into the ground. I just want to leave that out there a little bit with you. It's only about 20 minutes and this, we'll hit this again in the future. And you know, you know we will. Um, I put a post out this morning on um, FJP and what I, I wrote something about that. I can't remember what it was. And I think really what I say, I'm going to have to look at my own post here uh, to work out what it is. Uh, people that have been listening to me for a while understand where I'm coming from with this. Don't get me wrong. Um, yeah, basically I said you, you should never need something like this to happen before you start talking honestly about the mental health of your workforce. So we must all do better. Let's hope now he's found blue skies, the blue skies he was looking for. And I think that's really important because he's looking for something and now he's gone and found it and he didn't have to be this way. So his wife, Hannah, I think her name was here. It was, she doesn't have to be in the position that she's in now. He had a very extended family and there was no one else that could see that he was in a real bad way. And that's wrong. That shouldn't happen in any business. There should be a, a blanket there somewhere. I'm really interested in your comments, guys, and uh, how do we do this? So I'm going to put this on uh, FJP later uh, in the comments. If you get a chance, please uh, continue the conversation because we need to open this stuff up. There's still people flying that I know who go through waves of this and they use the buddies on the squadron to bounce off, and that's fine. And we used to use beers in the bar. I'm not saying it was right, but we used to hit the bar, and it was a release. Um, well, my father was a police officer. The police, the police, the police officers had um, all the police stations had um, clubs, had uh, drinking clubs above the um, above the main areas, because policemen couldn't normally go to other pubs because they're policemen, right? And then they started shutting all those those clubs because they felt it was wrong to encourage drinking in police establishments, um, which I think was a, a criminal act to, to to not allow that decompression that people need. My father was a traffic officer, so he would clear up road accidents and he would chase criminals and all sorts of stuff. He did that for 37 years. Ended up with a whole PTSD thing that led him into um, years of alcohol abuse and eventually he died in his mid-60s from complications, from emphysema, from lifetime of smoking and obviously the damage of alcohol it did. And, and you know, so where is the where, where is the causal effect of that? Is it Do you say, well, dad was an alcoholic? Or do you say, well, there's dad just swept up bodies from the motorway for 37 years and and alcohol just helped him go to sleep at night and it just decompressed him and i think there's a lot to be said for having that decompression and i'm not saying it needs to be through the bottle but it needs to be there somewhere what we're finding in the air force now as i've just left of course is that people aren't going to the bar anymore and they're going to sitting in the rooms and they're using the internet and watching films and they're not getting together and talking about these things and i can't see this problem getting any better unless we uh, we really start talking about it on the squadrons and, and really start talking about it in the, uh, the industries and the, the workplaces that we're in. I hope this helps you guys. Um, it's probably worth looking out for each other because I know people don't and it's very difficult, isn't it? But um, as we're talking about now on the 12 months of the Awesome Warrior program, we're talking about looking at someone's energy state. You can tell a lot from, uh, when I'm in combat, you can tell a lot from an aircraft's energy state and you can be in work and tell a lot from your boss's energy state or your your colleagues energy state as well when they're coming in they're down for like you know, days on end 
There's probably something wrong there. They probably need you to take them out for a cup of coffee. Else they might not come in the next day, of course. And then that's a bit late, isn't it? I really appreciate you listening to me. I'm sorry it's a bit of a rant. I just get really angry when this kind of shit happens. It pisses me off. It doesn't need to. It's just, it's just a poor management uh, that try and minimize the wages to maximize those profits for the shareholder. And, and look, what's the, look what, how much does a Dash 8 even cost? More to the point, how much does this dude's life even cost? For his wife, his life is significantly more important than some friggin' airplane. I was probably bought secondhand anyway. Right, guys, bit of a rant. Sorry, I'm out of here. Go grab myself a beer. Take care. Hit me up in the in the comments below. I really appreciate your time. Tim Davies, Fashion Performance.